Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you are having a great long weekend wherever you may be, wherever you're watching this from. And we're diving right back in into our Hebrews 11 Scripture Talk series, Flawed Yet Faithful, going through all of the heroes of faith um, that the author tells us about. And just as a reminder to you as we're getting started, each one of these people is supposed to be an example to us, but they're not supposed to be how we model our lives. They are flawed. Yes, they're faithful, but they still have their things that they can improve on. And really, each of these examples is supposed to point us to focus our eyes on the example, which is Jesus. That we looked at these giants of faith found in Hebrews as examples of how they live their lives in hardship, in persecution, and in, in moments that make them uncomfortable. Because each one of us watching this morning face hardships. We face things that are difficult and they make us uncomfortable. But instead of fearing them, we can remember everything that Jesus has done for us. And each one of these heroes of faith points us to him. And so this is highlighted in our passage to ponder that we've been carrying every week of this series. And so this morning we'll read from Hebrews 11 verses 39 and 40. And why don't you read it out loud with me wherever you are? It says, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. So we see their faith-filled examples and we get to see because we are later on, we are after the Bible has been written, what Jesus had done for us. And we get to be a part of that story that we get to keep persevering to push through our current circumstances, whatever they may be, no matter how challenging they look in order to see his promises and his purposes. And so this morning, we're gonna look at someone, um, the next person in our that the author describes. And the author actually points out their faith at the end of their life. They don't comment on the faith that they had all throughout, but they comment on what it was like at the end. Now, this person does not always have a good reputation. And ironically, name their name actually means cheater, trickster, or supplanter. And that person is Jacob. And even his name gives a little bit of an indication, a little bit of a spoiler alert as to some things that are going to happen in his life. And I don't know about you, but growing up for me, um, I had a lot of people mispronounce my name. I don't think it's overly hard. It's Kristen, in case you didn't know. And I would get Kirsten, Kirsten. I would get um, Christian. And even when I went into kids ministry for a, a number of years, I would get Kitchen, Kritchen. Uh, I would get a lot of things. And I would always kind of joke around when someone would refer to me as Christian that I would respond no matter what, because I was a Christian. So I would say, if you call me Christian, I'll still look, I'll still, I'll still know what you're talking about. And just a fun fact, my name Kristen actually means follower of Christ. So when I look at the translation of my name, follower of Christ comes up and it's really cool because it's an indication of who I am. And that's not always the case for everyone, but for me, that is the case. And it's the same with Jacob's, that he was a trickster a cheater, a deceiver, a supplanter, and that it is imprinted all throughout his life and all throughout his actions and what he does. And yet, this is what Hebrews 11 says about him. It says, it was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. 
Now, if you're like me, um, in the last number of weeks, we've talked about a lot of different people, a lot of different names. And so sometimes I can get confused as to where we are in the family tree. We throw out a lot of names and I'm trying to think, was that their cousin? I can't remember, was that their son? And so there will be a family tree on the screen for you to follow along. But you had Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, who I talked about a few weeks ago. And then they had Isaac, who married Rebecca. And that's where we land today, that they have two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. You're going to hear those names a lot this morning. And Jacob was actually the younger twin. And as we read and will learn, he struggled with that. He struggled with being second place. He struggled with being the second one who came out. And as we're going to go through his life, some scholars have pointed out that Jacob's life is actually known as the one who teaches us about the process. We're going to see Jacob have some interesting conversations with God, wrestle with him. There's going to be just a lot of different things that the Lord is teaching him. And so when we as people now look at Jacob's life, we can see him and we can see how God is working in a tangible way. That that is how we can say, wow, that's how God is working things out in his life and maybe mine. And so to understand how Jacob got to this place of faith, of rest, of worship that Hebrews talks about, we're going to need to go on a little bit of a journey through Jacob's life and look at specific events that led up to this and how as an old man, he actually um, portrays this character that we find in Hebrews. And so let's start right at the beginning of his story. We're going to look at his birth and we're going to kind of title this section, The Power Struggle. So for 20 years after they were married, Isaac and Rebecca were barren. Pastor Al talked about that last week, just as Isaac's mother, Sarah, was also barren before her. But Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife and the Lord answered his prayer as well. And in the course of their pregnancy, um, she started feeling the baby moving around within her. Sarah was like, I think I'm feeling a lot more than I should. And so let's start reading in Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 22. And it says, but the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to the Lord and asked him about it. Why is this happening to me? She said, and the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, these two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. And your older son, this is Esau, is going to serve your younger son, which is Jacob. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob and Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Now this power struggle is kind of a foreshadowing into what Jacob's life is going to be like, full of conflict, full of power struggles, full of trying to be on top, that there is a struggle of who was going to become numero uno, if you could say. Who was going to be the best of the best? Who's going to um, come out on top? And Jacob, as we're going to see, is going to use all the trickery, all the deception um, in order to, to, to get there. And Esau was on track, even in the womb, to be the first one to come out. And yet, when Rebecca gives birth, there you see 
Jacob holding on by the heel saying, I am going to be as close as I can to you. You are not getting out without me. And so he's literally holding on to the heel. But there is this power struggle and it reminds me of this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples in the New Testament and a conversation about being the greatest. So in Mark chapter nine, in verse 33, it says, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out there on the road? And the disciples are very relatable. They're my, some of my favorite people in the Bible. And they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. So clearly they were like, I don't know if he's going to be upset with us about talking about it. So they don't answer. But Jesus sits them down and he calls this 12 disciples over to him. And he says, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everybody else. The first thing that we can learn from Jacob's life is that our place in the kingdom of God has to be a place of, of humility. Jacob is struggling even from being an infant to be on top, that Jacob was constantly striving to be the best, constantly striving to, to get ahead and willing to do whatever it took to get there, even at other people's expense. And yet Jesus teaches us the opposite, that humility is more important than power. That instead of trying to be on top, instead of trying to be the greatest, we wanna take the place that Jesus said, where we take last place, that we wanna be the servant of everyone else. And that doesn't mean that we get walked over, but it means that we are constantly looking out for how we can be there and helping other people. And so this power struggle theme continues all throughout Joseph's life. And as he gets older, he decides to trick his brother out of a birthright. He ends up trading it for a bowl of soup. Um, and then later on, him and his mother, Rebecca, they devise a plan to trick Isaac, who is now almost blind, into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Again, blessings and birthrights were extremely important back in this, in this conversation. And they go actually to the extent where they dress Jacob up in all this fur because his brother was pretty hairy and they have all these lies in place so that he can be blessed and they can truly trick Isaac. And Jacob actually gets the blessing. It works and Esau becomes very angry. And so Jacob's life is characterized as we're gonna talk about over and over again with lies and deception and yet God is not done with his story, which is great news. And so we just talked about the birth and now we're gonna kind of transition into another um, life event that I wanna focus on, which was his first encounter with God. And we're gonna entitle this section, Bargaining. And so right after Jacob and Rebecca deceive Isaac and get Esau's blessing, Jacob decides that he has to run away because he knows that his brother Esau is so mad that he might kill him. I know this sounds like an action movie, they should make one, but they trick Isaac, he blesses Jacob, and then Jacob and Rebecca decide it's too dangerous for Jacob to stay around, so he needs to run to flee from his brother. And so as he's fleeing, it's right after all of this that the Lord shows up. So let's read from Genesis um, chapter 28, starting in verse 10. It says, Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. So he's sleeping on a rock, overly not comfortable, but it works. 
And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants and your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. This sounds very similar to the covenant to Abraham and Isaac. They will spread out in all directions to the east and to the west, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more is that I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything that was promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was so afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. And so before we kind of break up a little bit about what's happening here and what it means for the grander story, I want to point out verse 16 to you that I think is so important. Jacob awakens from this dream where the Lord is just downloading this covenant on him. He is saying, here is everything that I am promising you. Here is everything that I am going to bring into fruition. Everything that I promised your grandfather Abraham, everything that I promised to your father Isaac, And Jacob wakes up. Remember, he's just laying on the road on a rock. And he says this, the Lord is in this place. And I was not even aware of it. And that verse just speaks to me personally. I don't know if it speaks to you. I hope it does. But there are so many times in our life where we feel like God isn't there, where we feel like we're lying on the side of the road on a rock, uncomfortable, running from the things that um, in our lives that are hard where we feel like God isn't listening to us anymore, that he's forgotten us. And yet all throughout the Bible, we learn that it says that God will not forsake you, that he will never leave you. And there's actually a worship song that is um, written around this interaction that Jacob has with the Lord. And it's called Here Again by Elevation. And the bridge says this line, not for a minute was I forsaken because the Lord is in this place. And I pray in our own lives that we have the eyes to see where the Lord is. Now, we don't understand his whole plan, but that even when it feels like I'm lying on the side of the road, laying on a rock, that I can have enough spiritual maturity, spiritual awareness to know the Lord never leaves me. I might not feel it that in moments where we can't see him or when we can't or when it doesn't feel like it, that we can still say, Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. That even when we are in those moments that we can say, the Lord is in this place, even though I'm not aware of it right now. But I have faith to know in the future that I'm going to turn around and I'm going to say, the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know. And I just love that that verse that Jacob wakes up and he goes, he's here, even on this side of the road. And so to to recap, God reiterates all these promises to Jacob here. And there is no ifs, ands, or buts. God doesn't put any conditions on it. He just says, here's everything I'm promising you. You are going to be a great nation. I am going to bless the world through your descendants. You are going to spread far and wide. Here is everything that I am promising to you. And despite all of these things already that Jacob has done, deceiving, deception, trying to be on top all the time, 
God is giving him a clean slate and saying, I'm going to carry out these promises for you. You don't have to do anything. As long as you are willing, as long as you are listening, I am going to do it all. And so you'd think that Jacob, the one who is always trying to be on top, would just embrace this truth wholeheartedly. But this is what Jacob replies in Genesis 28. It says, then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar that I have set up will become a place of worshiping God, and I will present God a tenth of everything that he gives to me. So God says, here is everything that I am just going to bless you with. I'm just going to give you. And Jacob says, actually, I would like to take all that and I would like to put some conditions on it. I would like to make it more of a deal. That Jacob lays out, here's five things, God, that I need you to do for me. I need you to protect me. I need you to make sure that I have food, that I have clothing, that um, just all these things, that I go back to my father's homeland. Here are all the things that I need you to do for me. And then I'm going to do two things. So you give me five, I'll give you two. And he starts bargaining and he takes this abundant grace, these promises that are unending. And he takes those and he says, I want to shrink them down to how I can understand them. And don't we all do the same? I know I do. I'll be the first one to raise my hand that instead of accepting the amazing truths and promises that the Bible says that the Lord just gives to us, that he just says, if you follow me, if your eyes are focused on me, I will give you hope, peace, joy, patience. I will give you blessings. I will do all of those things. Then we kind of start saying, okay, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And vice versa. That we start trading, that we start making conditions. And yet when God offers it all to Jacob, he brings it back down to his level. And he says, that's too big. I need to make it smaller. And C.S. Lewis writes something that's so profound. He says, I think everyone who has some vague belief in God until he becomes a Christian has this idea of an exam or of a bargain, that Christianity is just a set of rules that you have to memorize in order to write the exam or that it's a bargain between you and God. But the first result of real Christianity is to blow that idea into bits that we don't need to put God in a box, that when he says, I promise that I'm going to do this for you, that instead of trying to maneuver around it and make all these deals, that we can say, I'm just going to take it. I'm going to take your generosity, your mercy that he offers to us. So that was Jacob's first encounter with God. Now we're going to focus on a time where Jacob actually wrestles with God. And we're going to entitle this section, Blessing into Brokenness or blessing through brokenness. And so after all this, Jacob heads to his uncle Laban's house and he finally gets a piece of his own medicine. I don't know about you, but that is oddly satisfying to me. And so Jacob goes there and he falls in love with Rachel and he wants to marry her. And so he goes to Laban and he says, okay, you can marry um, Rachel, but you need to work for me for seven years. So Jacob says, okay, no problem. Does that, gets married, and then wakes up the next morning and realize he married the wrong daughter, that Laban had tricked him. So instead of marrying Rachel, 
He has married Rachel's younger sister, Leah. I don't know how he didn't know until then. That is not for this morning. Um, But he wakes up in the morning and he says, you're not Rachel. I am now, oh, I'm married to Leah. So he goes back to Laban and he says, excuse me, I married the wrong daughter. What do I have to do to marry Rachel? And Laban says, okay, for Rachel, you're going to have to work another seven years. Which Jacob goes, okay, I love Rachel, so I'm going to do that. So he works another seven years. And after all this is done, Jacob is leaving from Laban. Again, that's just a quick part of his story. And he deceives him out of his entire herd and then hightails it back to his hometown. So again, lots of trickery, lots of lying, a lot of running. He doesn't want to face anything. And so we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 32 where Jacob is now married. He's now left Laban. He has some children and he finds out that his brother Esau, remember the one that he tricked around the soup and God is blessing all the craziness, that he finds out that Esau is coming with 400 of his men. And so he decides that he's going to send three waves of servants out bearing gifts um, to appease his brother. And if that doesn't work, then he crosses this river and with his wives, and then he's going to encounter God again. So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 32. And it says, During the night, Jacob got up and took his wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. And after taking them to the other side, he sent over all of his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win this match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said to him, I will not let go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. And he replied, Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob. The man told him for now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men. And you have won. And so this is a very interesting narrative in the Bible because it doesn't really give us a lot of context. We don't really know how the man got there, how they started fighting. And we're not going to get into all that this morning. But all throughout this story, what I really want to drill down about this this argument is all throughout Jacob's life, everything that we've been reading, he has been using his own strength and his own cunning mind to get what he wants. That in order to be on top, he has used just his own strength, his own willingness in order um, to get what he wants. And yet in this moment, because he's fighting with a divine being, whether that be God himself or an angel, whatever it may be, that he is fighting with this divine being. And God is saying, I am going to take your natural strength away. I'm going to empty you in order for me to use you a little bit more. That he is fighting with God and and God is going to give him a limp that he is going to pop the hip socket right out when it doesn't seem like Jacob is going to give up and he's going to say okay then I'm going to take that away from you your natural strength everything that you have been building your life on I'm going to take it away because I want to use you in a different way and yet even then his hip socket is out and Jacob is saying I am not going to give up until you give me a blessing And yet the blessing will only come when Jacob acknowledges who he is. The divine being says, what is your name? And really, he's asking, who are you? And Jacob has to say, yeah, I'm Jacob. I'm a trickster. 
I'm a deceiver. Remember, that's what his name really means. I'm a supplanter. That he has to recognize that he has his own limits in his strength. And often I think that we can get confused, myself included, about what a blessing of God is. That we think that a sign of God's blessing is prosperity and that it's easy. That it really just means that we live a trouble-free life. But if you ask Jacob what the sign of God's blessing in his life was, he would point to his walking stick and his limp and he would say, that is the blessing that God gave me. Man, that is just so good that God had to empty him, had to break, hurt his hip to say, that's how I want to bless you. That's what I'm going to use to transform you. Charles Spurgeon, a really popular theologian said, I bear wit willing witness that I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than to anything else in my Lord's workshop. That I sometimes question whether I have ever learned anything except through the rod or through hardship. When my schoolroom is darkened, I can see the most. That he's saying that through the greatest trials is when the Lord has come through and taught me the most. And through Jacob's brokenness comes this blessing and this identity shift that he fights literally with God, literally with a divine being. And his name is changed in that moment from Jacob, which means deceiver and trickster, to Israel, which means the prince that prevails with God, that it was this moment of wrestling with God, of losing, of giving up his natural strength that gives him the gateway into transformation. And so finally, we're gonna look at the last part of his life. And after all of these roller coaster moments, we're going to briefly turn our attention to the surrender and rest that we find later in his life. And we're gonna entitle this section, Bowing to God. And by this time, Jacob has um, a number of sons. And so Joseph, who Pastor Derry is going to talk about next week, is a ruler in, um, under Pharaoh in Egypt at this time. So remember, Jacob, this is now Joseph. We're talking about Joseph's son, or Joseph, sorry, Jacob's son. And he is a ruler in Egypt during a great famine. And at this point, Jacob is under the impression that his son, Joseph, has been killed that he is dead, that they will never see him again. And so he's turned his favorite, he, Jacob, and then there's Joseph. He favors Joseph. He thinks Joseph is dead. So then he decides, I'm going to favor my other son, Benjamin. And at this point, um, also Sarah, the love of his life, Sarah has the one he's worked so hard to marry. She has died and she only gave him those two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So Joseph is dead. All he has left, of Sarah is Benjamin. And so that's an important part to keep in mind here. But because of this famine, Jacob's sons need to go to Egypt in order to find food. And because Benjamin is the favorite, Jacob says, you are not going. I will let all the other brothers go, but you are staying with me because I'm going to make sure that you are protected. And so in Egypt, Joseph, who, spoiler alert, is alive. Pastor Derry is going to lay all this story out next week recognizes his brothers and Joseph also trips them and says, and it starts accusing them of being spies and arrest them, arrest one of the sons, Simeon. And they're only allowed to go back for more food. And Joseph will only release Simeon um, from prison if they bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, 
back. Joseph knows that Jacob favors Benjamin. He says, I will not release this brother from prison until you come back with um, this other son, Benjamin. And they don't know that Joseph is who he says he is. Again, I'm really getting into the story a little bit too much, but next week we'll talk about it. And so he says, I want you to bring Benjamin. And remember, this is Jacob's favorite son. He had a favorite, Joseph, and now he thinks Joseph is dead. And so he says, Benjamin is the one that I need to protect because it's all I have left of Sarah. And so they go back and forth and back and forth. And Jacob is denying them to bring Benjamin with him despite all the pleading that he says, I don't want the worst case scenario to happen. I don't want you to bring Benjamin and I don't want to lose him too. That he's holding on to all of these things. And we all do this. God says, I want you to give that up. We've talked about that the last number of weeks with the, the other patriarchs that we've been looking at. But God says, I want you to give that up. Abraham, I want you to give up Isaac. And he says, I don't want to. This is the one that I love. And now we see this man who could wiggle out of any predicament must now take his hands off the wheel and rely on the will of another. Whatever the outcome of that is going to be, that it is the hardest test of all. So in Genesis 43, it says, so their father Jacob finally said to them, after all this back and forth, after all this pleading, if it can't be avoided, then at least do this. Pack your bags with the best products of this land, take down gifts, and then he lists some, and also take the money that was put back in your sacks as it was probably someone's mistake. Then take your brother and go back to the man. May God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. And then this is the statement of faith. He says, but if I must lose my children, so be it. That after sacrificing his own will and surrendering all of it, it leads to great payoff. Eventually he finds out that Joseph is alive, his favorite. But before that moment of celebration, he has to lay it all on the line. He has to let go of what was closest to his heart. And we all have these moments where we're holding something so tight. And in this case, the Lord says, you have to let Benjamin go. Just like Abraham had to put Isaac on the altar. Just like these moments that we've been reading about, the Lord says you have to be willing to sacrifice it. And that God worked through his life since the beginning, that Jacob has come a long way. And that despite his flaws, he is transforming him into who he is calling him to be. That just like his name changes from deceiver and trickster, and God says, I'm giving you a new name. You are going to be the prince that prevails with God. That each one of us watching this morning gets an identity shift. That the Lord says you are no longer going to be who, who you once were. But you're going to be who I've called you. Jacob, you're no longer going to be a deceiver or a trickster. You're going to be a person that prevails with me. That each person here also watching. That we have the same option as well. And so Jacob is a man like any of us. His story is a... Um, his life is a story of a transformed man who from a deceiver becomes a believer. And in my mind, when I read this passage from Hebrews about his faith, it's like Jacob is standing there surveying the end of his life, leaning on his staff and being amazed at everything that the Lord has done for him. That Hebrews tells us that at the end of his life, at the end of all of it, he's pictured to be faithful, a person who blesses those around him, and one who bows 
before God, even with his limp. And I want those things to be true about me, to be about all of us this morning, that we're faithful, that we bless others. And even when we have things that are barriers, even when we have things that get in the way, that we worship him. That at the end of it all, because of his limp, he still doesn't have it all together, but he knows who he can really lean on. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I thank you for the fact that we have your word, that we can learn about these great heroes of faith, not as the example that we follow, but God, as people who show us the way, who point us to you, who is the greatest example. God, we thank you for the fact that you give us a new identity, that you call each one of us to new places, God, that you rename us, that we can leave past in the past, our old identities, leave in the past the things that we used to do. God, yes, we can still struggle, but God, we wanna have our eyes focused on you. We wanna be people who are humble, who bow and worship God, who, who lay down our weaknesses and God, who are willing to sacrifice things when you call us to do so. God, you are trustworthy. And so we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for who you are, that we can lean on you just like Jacob did as he grew up and as he matured. God, help us to be humble people who just have our eyes fixed on the right place, which is you. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. We just pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.